You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Hey, it's great to be together. Uh, leading into the holiday, into Thanksgiving week. I hope you're excited about that, and we certainly all need prayer, as Rob just uh, just prayed for us, don't we? Uh, may God help us all to celebrate this season um, and encountering, engaging with him during it all. If we've not met before, my name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'd like to add my voice to the others by saying thank you for coming. It's great to have you with us, and uh, we are in a study of the book of Acts. The last couple of weeks we took a detour because we had a couple of other things to do. Last week was Orphan Sunday, um, and the week before that we had Ian McConnell with us, so a guest preacher. So we're back in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts 6 today. Um, I want to talk about church growth through church problems, church growth through church problems. Um, <clears throat> you may notice that the last time we were together we were in chapter 4, and uh, when we launched into the book of Acts, excuse me, when we launched into the book of Acts, I explained that uh, we weren't going to be covering every passage, <clears throat> and I'm skipping a few of the passages here early when uh, the ministry is in Jerusalem. We're going to pay more attention to the gospel going forth into Samaria and uh, to the Gentiles because we're wanting to focus on that idea this year, how the gospel crosses uh, cultural barriers to reach people with the good news. So here's what's been going on so far. The church got off to a great start, but at this part of the, the story, we're seeing that really the enemy, Satan, is resisting the church and is making it difficult for uh, those who are following Jesus. So in chapter 4, for instance, uh, which we covered a few weeks ago, Uh, the apostles are arrested. In chapter 5, they are arrested and actually beaten uh, for their faith. So there is this outward persecution that is seeking to stop the move of the gospel. Uh, Also in chapter 5, there is this uh, hypocrisy which hits the church. A man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, Sapphira, they lie uh, to the Holy Spirit, they lie about. It had to be. With, it had to do with a money issue, uh, a donation that they claimed to make, and all this kind of stuff. And so, uh, God judged them, and they died. They, they actually died in the church service, which was pretty alarming. Uh, so there is this inward corruption that starts in the church. So there's outward persecution. There's inward deception, and the judgment of God comes uh, to to, uh, to to actually take their lives for their. Uh, seeking to deceive and harm the new church. The next challenge that the church faces is what we're going to read today in chapter 6. It's division. So there's persecution from without, there's corruption from within, and there is division. And the division that we're going to read about, or the potential division, is over a most delicate matter that really could have derailed the church. And yet what happened is God takes the difficulty, he takes the challenge, and he uses it to strengthen the church and actually grow the church through this problem. So we're going to read about it in Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. Listen to God's word. 
Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is a fascinating passage that really lays out sort of three things. If you're, if you're a problem solver, maybe your work has to do with that sort of thing. Uh, uh, this passage just lays out perfectly in the way you do life and think about life. There's a problem, and then there is a solution, and then Luke gives us the result. That's really how the passage breaks down. A problem, a solution, and then the result of the solution. First of all, the problem. Well, here's the context of what the church is uh, going through right now. The church is growing. And the way we know that this passage is emphasizing a season of growth is not because it repeats growth throughout. Sometimes a passage will repeat a word, and so we know that's an emphasis that God's wanting us to see. This one does something different. It opens with a theme, and it closes. The section closes with the theme. So in verse 1, in these days, the disciples were increasing in number. You see that. And then if you look at verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So this unit, this little story, of this part of the narrative, is bracketed by statements about how the gospel is increasing, the disciples are increasing, the word of God actually speaks of the word of God increasing, meaning the effects of the gospel, the effects of the word are going forth and more people are coming to faith. But in the middle of this growth, there are all these challenges of persecution and the, the couple that was given to deception and now this challenge of division. And the challenge is that as the church is growing, a complaint arises from one group of church members toward another group of church members. You see that in verse 1. It says that a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. A complaint against the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. Can we, can we put that scripture up, please, and track along with that in verse 1, you'll see, see that, that, thank you so much, that a complaint by the Hellenists, the second line there, arose against the Hebrews. Uh, the word complaint here, it, it signifies discontent or displeasure that is expressed through murmuring. That is, that is what the original Greek word means. It's a, it's a, it's a displeasure that, that follows with murmuring, kind of sort of a, a, a speaking of one's discontent. 
And the Hellenists are the ones who raise this against the Hebrews. Now, if you have the NIV, I believe it says the Grecian Jews and the Hebrew Jews. So it's two groups of people from a Jewish uh, background. Uh, And the issue is that the Hellenists or the Greek Jews, their widows are being neglected in the daily food distribution. This is really serious at so many levels. This is a minefield of, of issues that could explode on the church. Now, here's how the early church in the book of Acts is made up. We, they haven't left Jerusalem and gone to the Samaritans. They haven't gone to the ends of the earth and re, the Gentiles. We're still in Jerusalem, and the church is made up of people who are converted Jews at this point. And there are two major groups in Judaism at this point. There are the Hebraic Jews, which are Jews that live in Israel. They speak Aramaic, and they have a very unified culture. Their culture is very similar. They live in Israel. Now, we're in Jerusalem here. Uh, Same language, same culture, not a lot of variety. The Greek Jews, or the Hellenists, are those who live in the diaspora, which is the the Jews that are spread out all over the Roman Empire. We saw at the beginning of the book of Acts that there are people at Pentecost who are from Africa, who are from modern-day Turkey, who are from uh, what would be the modern-day Middle East, Saudi Arabia. From all of these places, Jewish believers had gathered for uh, Pentecost and had become converted. What they have in common is they all speak Greek. They're from different places, but they all speak Greek, which is the language of the Roman Empire. And so what you have are these two groups of people that had separate synagogues. The Greek Jews had separate synagogues because they spoke Greek. The Hebrew Jews had separate synagogues because they spoke uh, Aramaic and read Hebrew, obviously, as well. And so you have these two groups of people, and now we've just got one church. We don't have two different churches. We've got one church with different people in it, and the culture is not unified at all. And what is happening is that these Greek-speaking Jews, their widows are being overlooked when food is being distributed daily. Now, what's interesting about these widows is many of them may have actually moved to Jerusalem. So they lived in an outlying area. Um, They lived in a foreign land, a foreign culture, And they moved to Jerusalem because there was social help for Jews that came from the temple. So you likely have some of these widows who've relocated to Jerusalem so that they could be cared for, uh, some of them in their old age, uh, but they've come to be cared for, and now they've left, uh, in essence, left Judaism. It's still pretty new here. But they're in the church, and they're being overlooked. And this is potentially a really really big deal. Because you already have two groups of people with differences, the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews. And now we have the most vulnerable people in the church being overlooked. Um, The most vulnerable people in the scripture are widows and orphans. We could add immigrants to that as well. But widows and orphans, because widows and orphans have no voice in the culture. They're unable to provide for themselves, so they are often defenseless. Uh, They are often dependent upon others. 
And so this group, which cannot provide for themselves, have now become Christians, are now a part of the church, and they are being overlooked by the Hebraic Jews, which are the majority population of the church at this point, probably significantly so. So the, the, this minority population in the church is being uh, neglected by the majority population, which is the Hebraic Jews, which includes the apostles. So the complaint, verse 1, the complaint registered by the Greek-speaking Jews rose against the Hebrews, which include all of the leadership at this point in the church. It's about to change in this passage. But at this point, all the leaders who are the apostles are uh, part of the Hebrew group. And this is significant because a complaint is being registered towards the leaders. Now, in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, it said that people were bringing things, donations, laying them at the apostles' feet, and the apostles were distributing them as to anyone who had need. So at one level, this is a charge against the apostles themselves because the Greek widows are being neglected is the word. So this is, this is rife for an, an explosion which separates everything right at the get-go of the church. So God gives a solution through the 12. That's the problem. Here's the solution. The 12 don't ignore the problem, verse 2. The 12 apostles summon the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out uh, among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I think it's fascinating that they don't blame shift. Is it their fault? We have no idea. The text doesn't say. But they don't say to the Greek widows, why are you like charging us of like blowing you off intentionally? Are you saying we don't love widows? You're saying we don't love Greeks? You're saying we're racist? What, what's going on here? That, there's none of that. They just apparently assume responsibility and say, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to solve this problem. There may have been an administrative breakdown somewhere that they had nothing to do with, but they don't say, hey, that's someone else's responsibility. Um, they say, no, we're going to solve this. Now, it wouldn't be right, they say, for us to give up preaching of the word to serve tables. They're not saying we are above the task of serving food, delivering food to widows. Rather, he's saying, they're saying, if we do this, it will take us away from what we're primarily called to do. We're not here to monopolize the ministry, to do everything that needs to be done. We have a specific calling as, uh, they don't say all this, I'm kind of reading into it a bit, but we have a, a calling as those who are witnesses to the resurrection to be, to be announcing that and to be establishing the church, to be teaching God's word and to pray. So what we need is we need someone else that can help with this need. And so they say, choose seven men. And they, they need to have three qualities. And by the way, these are qualities that are needed today for those who are involved in mercy ministry, needed for today for if those who are involved in administration. If you're, they're administrating a significant need. If you're involved in administration in the church, if you're involved in mercy ministry, these characteristics are necessary for you as well. Um, it says, first of all, they need to be of good repute. That is, they need to have a stellar reputation. They need, 
to have a stellar reputation as being faithful, doing what they say they're going to do, trustworthy people, because they are handling, if not money, they are administrating significant resources, probably money, but beyond that, significant resources. So they need to be people that are known to have integrity, to be honest, to have a sterling reputation. Secondly, they need to be full of the Spirit. I find this fascinating. They need to be empowered by God for this service. We don't think this way. We think people need to be full of the Spirit to do what I'm doing this moment. You know, somebody needs to be full of the Spirit if they're preaching, or someone needs to be full of the Spirit if they are leading worship, or someone needs to be full of the Spirit if they're witnessing and testifying, sharing their faith with another person. You need the Holy Spirit for that. For administrating stuff, you just need to be good at administration. But they say, no, they need to be filled with God's Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit to empower this mercy ministry, this care of widows. This is not something that's to be done in their own strength. Care for the needy is something that is near to God's heart, that he empowers those who give themselves to this. So you need to be full of the Holy Spirit of God. Do not be self-reliant. But go to care for those in need. Go to serve the vulnerable with the attitude of, oh, God, fill me with your spirit. We, we classify certain gifts and certain ministries as really needing the spirit, uh, using spiritual gifts, praying for the sick. Man, you got to be full of the spirit for that. But dividing up the food, yeah, you got to be full of the spirit for that too, is what the text says. And finally, they, they need to have wisdom. They need to have wisdom because Mercy ministry requires a tremendous, tremendous amount of wisdom. There are decisions that need to be made. There are times when, when you have to discern needs. There's times in mercy ministry when you actually have to say, no, we can't meet that need. That happens sometimes. And so there, there's real wisdom needing to, to tread delicately of helping and caring for those who are vulnerable. Decisions need to be made. So they choose the seven so that the apostles remain devoted to the prayer and ministry of the word, which is not an important, more important ministry, but a different ministry. And everyone is happy with this. Look at verse five. Um, they, uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering. So what did they say? Verse four, we're gonna devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Verse five, what they said pleased the whole gathering. man. I can see it not pleasing the whole gathering. Like a Peter, John, who do you think you are? Jesus can get down on his knees and wash dirty feet, but you ain't got time for the widows? You're too good for that? Really? Man, don't you care? You just care about being in your, you know, your high and mighty role. Uh, you don't even care for those who are in need. Man, it took really a lot of faith for the apostles to do what they did here, to say what they said here, because who wants to stand up and say, we won't be serving any widows, we're too busy praying? They'd be like, wow, that's, that doesn't sound real good, does it? Doesn't sound real good. But what they're saying is for the, for the church to be healthy, we need to be doing this. Someone else needs to be doing this. Everyone needs to be serving in differing roles for the church to be healthy. And they love that. And then they chose seven men. And here's the interesting thing. The men they chose, well, they all have Greek names. They chose likely 
people from a Greek uh, who, were, who were Hellenistic Jews themselves to serve the widows. First is Stephen. He's full of faith and the spirit, it says. Uh, in the next passage, in, in, in chapter 7, he's going to be the first recorded martyr in the new church. Uh, then they say Philip. He's going to be an evangelist. He's going to reach Samaria with the gospel. Amazing. So he's going to be used in that way as well. And then these other folks we don't know as much about other than they have Greek names. Uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicolaus. And after they are selected, verse 6 says, the apostles lay hands on them. They commission them is what's happening so that they can take care of this. And it wouldn't have just been the seven. There was probably a lot of Greek widows. So they probably oversaw a team, maybe a large team of folks who were involved in the daily distribution. Well, what is the result of this near explosion in the church. Verse seven, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What happens? The church grows. Outreach increases. More people are saved. And what we see in this passage is, man, here's the thing about church problems. God's will is to use church problems to bring a gospel solution so that the gospel not only reigns in the life of the church, but spreads more rapidly outside of the church. God actually uses church problems to grow the church. Now, I, I, I wish that wasn't the case, quite frankly. I would just rather be a part of a church, wouldn't you, that doesn't have problems, that's just always growing, that's just always getting along, that's just always full of love, that's just always seeing people love Jesus and care for one another. That's called heaven. That is not what's happening in the here and now. So we want to avoid difficulty. We don't want to have difficult conversations. We don't want to, uh, you know, we don't want to move towards challenges and seek to, you know, address differences. It's just easier to sweep it under the rug. That is what we all want to do. But look what happens here as this problem is addressed. Amazing things happen. First of all, the widows are cared for. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament that God often judges the people of Israel for not caring for the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. That that is near to God's heart. And so they are cared for in a powerful way here. Jesus is building his church. He says, he will, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so when the gates of hell start sowing seeds of division in the life of the church, Jesus acts and widows are cared for. Not only that, but new leaders are deployed. This is great. Here are a number of leaders. We don't know what they were doing before this, but now they have a responsible role in the life of the church and are likely leading teams of people. This is good. A deep fracture in the church is avoided. The church's multi-ethnic unity is strengthened. This is what God does through problems. The apostles focus on the word of God and prayer so that they can continue to declare the word and see people come to Christ. The church reaches more people with the good news of Jesus through this event. The word of God increases. Well, why does it increase? Well, because 
the apostles are doing what they're supposed to be doing and teaching the word as are others. Why does the, 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 the word of God continue to increase? Because people are serving, because the vulnerable are cared for, because now people can focus on mission rather than being hindered by division. Now rather than murmuring, now rather than neglecting, both sides, rather than doing that, the church can be focused on its testimony, its life together. The church is one, and this testifies to the grace of God. People can look on and go, wow, those people don't even connect at a language level. They don't connect at a cultural level. They had their own separate synagogues, and now they're all in the same thing together in the church, caring for one another. What's going on? It's a testimony to the grace of God and the number of disciples multiplies greatly such that verse seven says, even priests, this means Jewish priests, even leaders in Israel are watching this and getting converted, realizing this is not happening among us, but it's happening among you. And you're talking about Jesus. That must be the key. Even religious leaders are being converted through God bringing a solution because the apostles are humble, because they they do have a heart for the widows, because people, these Greek leaders are raised up to care for their people. And it's a beautiful, beautiful situation. How do we apply a passage like this? I think there's at least two, maybe multiple. I think there's at least a couple themes that God would draw our attention to from this passage. One is that we need to value different types of service. That is at the heart of this. And I'm going to show you this through a, through a word that's repeated that I think reveals that the, a heart, a part of the heart of this passage is that there are different types of service. And if we expect anybody to be omnicompetent or omnigifted, to monopolize ministry, it, it kills the church. But when each person operates in their various gifts, it strengthens the church. Now, it's interesting. There's two types of services, service mentioned here. Um, one is in verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's the word, serve tables. The same verse, the same word rather, is used in verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The word ministry is the same word as the word serve. So service or ministry means service. So service or ministry, we really could use those. We could use the same word in both of those places because it is the same word. And it tells us a lot. They're saying there is the serving of tables and there is the serving of the word. There is the ministry of tables, and there is the ministry of the word. And in Acts 6, word ministry and table ministry work together, and there is health, and there is life, and needs are met, and the testimony is beautiful to an onlooking world. We see this breakdown of two general types of ministry, word ministry, table ministry, um, in 1 Peter 4. I'm going to read to you 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, where Peter does the same thing with different language. But he said, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, here's the first one. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So he, he mentions two things. Now they obviously overlap, word ministry and table ministry overlap, but here he talks about speaking and serving. If your gift is speaking, then speak as if the very oracles of God. If your gift is serving, obviously speaking, serving, and people who serve speak, so there's both. But two broad categories. Whoever serves, serve by the strength that God supplies. So again, when these work together, the serving, the speaking, the table ministry, the word ministry, uh, things happen in the life of a church. Some, some people say, okay, look at these seven, these first seven. Are these the first um, people in the Bible, that, in the New Testament rather, that carry the office of servant, the office of deacon. Some people say that these are the first deacons. Well, we really can't say that because Luke doesn't say that. He doesn't call them deacons uh, at all. However, I think we can say that this passage does give us the origin um, of the office in, in, in the sense that it divides responsibilities between table ministry and word ministry. And we see that division in ministry throughout the church. So in, in, the, in the New Testament, we have teachers, we have uh, elders, that, that's a word ministry. We have, um, we have deacons who oversee administration, table ministry is what we could see. And we see that throughout the life of the church. So table ministry could be things that meet very practical needs, like in this situation, providing food. So table ministry is organizing. Table ministry is administrating. Table ministry is hospitality. That's what's going on in this passage. Table ministry is sort of setting things up and taking things down. Table ministry in a modern day has to do as well with facilities. Table ministry is finances and the management of finances, which you see with the seven who are taking the donated funds and then distributing them uh, to those who have need. In modern day, we might say table ministry has something to do with technology often uh, in the life of the church. Table ministry is practical care for widows and orphans. Last week we had Orphan Sunday. Today we're not having Widow Sunday, but we are having talking about ministry to widows just after. So that kind of ministry is table ministry, serving ministry, under the heading of diaconate ministry, we could say. Word ministry is different. It focuses more on teaching. Word ministry is counseling, bringing God's word to bear in people's life. Word ministry is leading a study, a Bible study, leading a small group and facilitating the application of God's word in people's lives. Word ministry is going on right now behind me, teaching the children in Grace Kids. Word ministry happens here on Wednesday night when there is teaching and small group ministry to middle school and high school students. Now, there's a lot of table ministry in both of those events as well, but there's a lot of word ministry that happens. And so what, what we see in Acts 6 early in the church is that both ministries are needed, the serving of the widows and the preaching of the word. And when they're both happening fruitfully, everybody benefits. It seems good to everybody, and the church is growing with multiplied disciples. And so this is so important that we see and we value 
ministries, other types of ministries, other people's ministries, other people's giftings. It's so important that we see this. I mean, arguably for these widows, these seven guys and their teams were made way more important than what the apostles were doing. Yeah, that, that, that guy's given a good sermon, but I need something to eat physically. And these guys and their teams provided the food that I needed. So both are important. Do you see what God is doing to build his church here? The book of Acts is about what Christ continues to do and to teach. And here he is caring for his people through his people, through his service. Let me ask you, if we value different types of service, um, do you have a a role of service in the life of the church? If I were to ask you, sometimes I, I meet someone from a church and I'll just ask, how are you involved? I don't say, what's your role of service? But how are you involved? How would you answer that? Do you have a place of service? Do you know your place of service? Do you value your place of service? Or do you compare your place of service to someone else's place of service? That doesn't seem to be happening here. There's a value of different types of service. Do you see the value of your type of service? See, it'd be easy to look at the situation and go, well, it's just food distribution. No, it's not just food distribution. It's widows whom God loves who are being neglected and forgotten, being cared for. That's huge. That's massive. That's arguably the most important thing happening in the church in this moment. It's recorded for us in Scripture. We know this, right? Reading the book of Acts, it's a history. Everything that happens here is history. Everything we read here is history. But it's a very, very, very selective history. God just gives us little snapshots of what he wants us to know. And this is what he wants us to know here, that this is not just food distribution. This is the care of widows. It's nearly impossible to overemphasize the importance of this service. James calls it pure religion care for the widow and the orphan. It's not just food distribution. A Greek and Hebrew separation is averted. It's not just food distribution. It's unity in a multi-ethnic church of people with different cultures and different languages around Jesus. It's not just food distribution. It's not just food distribution. The word is proclaimed and increased because of this. It's not just food distribution. People are using their gifts for the glory of God. It's not just food distribution. The enemy's plans to divide the church, to separate the people of God, his plans are foiled. And the plan of Jesus rules and reigns. It's not just food distribution. People come to Christ, and it's connected to this. Verse 7, and... Everything you just read happened, and the word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied. He's wanting to say that through this, care of the widows, fruitful gospel expansion occurred. It's not just food distribution. So do you see your role of service like that? Or the reason I'm doing this is because we should all see our role of service like this. It's not just food distribution. It's devil-destroying, God-glorifying, gift-deploying, spirit-empowering ministry. It's not just greeting. It's not just serving in grace kids. It's not just hosting a small group. 
It's not just listening to a hurting person in the church. It's not just praying for someone. It's, it's not just coming early to set up or staying late to take down. It's not just working on the website at the church. It's not just, it's not just any of these things which we can look at and say, oh, it's just such a small thing. The Bible wants us to see it connects to something much bigger, health in the body and an overflow of gospel ministry going forth because the witness of the church is intact, the poor in the church, the vulnerable are cared for, the apostles are studying and preaching the word of God and it's growing. Do you have a place of service and do you see it with the dignity that God gives it? The, the widows matter and service ministry matters. I don't think this is primarily a passage about widows but having said that, ministry to widows is the context of the passage and is a significant part of the passage. And it, it'd be a great time for me to communicate if you're unaware that we do have in our church a ministry to widows and, and similarly folks who are in a vulnerable situation. It's, it's called the HELPS team and it's an extension of our mercy ministry. The purpose of the HELPS team is to serve members of Grace Church specifically um, where they require assistance in, you know, kind of physical things, home repairs, auto repairs, uh, needing consulting on managing those kinds of needs as well. So it's for widows, it's for single moms, it's for people with disabilities, and there's actually a portal on the website. You can go to our church website. You can go under Mercy Ministry, under Ministries, and you'll see the Helps Ministry on there. And if you're a member of the church and you're in one of those categories in need, you can click on that and write out your need, and someone will follow up with you. And there's a team of folks who seek to do what they can to help. Uh, if you'd like to serve in that ministry, um, you, you need to have some kind of game to like, if, if like everything you fix has to be refixed, <laughs> like you, you did the plumbing project and then spent a couple grand on hiring a plumber to fix what you messed up, there's other ministries for you. <laughs> we value all ministries. We value all ministries. But if you're a fix-it person, um, then you can just email FJ, um, who's our deacon of Mercy Ministry, also our pastoral intern, but FJ, no periods, just the letters FJ at gracechurchfrisco.org, and let him know you would like to help. We value all kinds of service. Secondly, and I'll wrap up here, the passage teaches us to not only value differing types of service, but to value differing types of people. That's at the heart of this passage as well. Widows matter. And additionally, from the beginning of the whole book, from the day of Pentecost, we've noticed how God is building a multi-ethnic church in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, gathered are people from all over the world who hear the gospel, 3,000 of them believe, and they become the church. And so from the beginning, God says, I'm gonna take these Jewish, uh, these Hebrew Jews and these Greek Jews, and the Greek Jews come from all kinds of cultural backgrounds in different countries, as I mentioned, as diverse and different as Turkey and Northern Africa. So they're coming from very different places and I'm gonna meld them all together. And what happens when that happens? Well, there's challenges. And this passage says, 
there's challenges when different people are together. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on. He doesn't say there was overt discrimination. He doesn't even say that there was accidental discrimination, but there was neglect of one type of person, these, these Greek widows in the church. There is neglect, and uh, in somehow this minority population, widows, which is a minority population, and Greek-speaking widows who were never in the synagogues with the Hebrew-speaking uh, Jews, they, they are overlooked. You know, they may not have, it doesn't say, but it could very well be that they were overlooked simply because they weren't aware. The apostles may not have been aware of all that was going on. We, I would assume they weren't aware of all that was going on. It could be because they weren't aware of all that was going on with the Greek Jews because they had their own synagogues prior to being in the church. So there is this cultural distance. There is this cultural gap. There is this language distance. It could have been a language barrier at some level. We don't know. But there's some kind of difference that has caused this population to be overlooked. And God addresses it in such a beautiful way. There may have been Greek and Hebrew-speaking synagogues, but now they are all one in the church. Ajit Fernando, uh, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says, the Jerusalem church faced serious problem, faced a serious problem in unity because of its multicultural composition. The solution to the problem facing the church was not to divide and have separate churches, one for the Grecians and another for the Hebraists. Rather, they sought to ensure that the Grecians were cared for. They didn't say, start your own church, and we'll send an apostle with you. They said, no, we're in this together. Now, let's get some people who understand the problem and can help solve the problem. It's really powerful. And I think it, it, it maps on to our theme for the year, which is learning to love cross-culturally. Here is the church learning to love cross-culturally. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. I know when we announce that theme for the year, it, I get it. It's easy to think, man, is that, like, is that like taking a cultural theme in our American culture? Is that like taking a cultural theme and just like superimposing it on the scripture? And I would say, absolutely not. This is the undercurrent of the New Testament. How do different people get along? How do Jew and Gentile live out being one in Jesus Christ. And at times, it's not an undercurrent. It's on the surface in our face saying, this is the issue. This is the issue. We don't get all the details of what's going on, but we do know one group of folks were complaining about another group of folks. They registered a complaint. They are murmuring, and one group of folks is neglecting the other group of folks, and they happen to be from culturally different backgrounds. And if this is happening throughout the New Testament and on the pages of the book of Acts, then we're just foolish to say that could never happen in the modern world. We're so far more holy and advanced beyond this primitive, sinful, selfish people. This would never happen today. Oh, it can happen today. And these kinds of passages help us to see how are we to think, how are we to look, how, what, how are we to to prevent even this kind of thing by taking steps of love cross-culturally. We want to maintain the multi-ethnic unity of God's church in our own church. So a couple of questions for you following up this passage. How can we each serve and how can we each value the service of others? 
We each need our Poe. We need, each need to have a post. We each need to have a role. We need to see how that's connected to the health of the church and the outreach of the church. That's where we start. And we need to treasure and value the service of others. Word or table ministry does not matter. It all counts. It's all glorious before the Lord. So how can we each serve and value the service of others? Technically, uh, secondly rather, how can we build cross-culturally and value the differences in another for the health of the church? I've gotta believe this, is, this was a, a starting point in the church where something happened after this, where they became aware of one another. They became aware of one another's needs. They became aware of one another's culture, perhaps even from this. And we're really at a great time of the year because holidays can be a great time to learn from others, to benefit from others, to enter into someone else's traditions even of celebrating the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ. How can we value other services? How can we serve? How can we value other people and learn and know them well and closely as the people of God so that this may be true increasingly with us as well as we are unified May, may the number of disciples multiply. May the gospel go forth. May we see many come to Christ. You know, as we come to communion to close the service today, um, this is a time as we come to the table together to say we value different services and we value different people. Let me just point out what is so obvious but so easily forgotten. Somebody got here early and set all this up for us. The Holy Spirit's active, but the Holy Spirit didn't pour this juice and set these tables up. That was done by people. I saw John here early doing it. That, that, that people have served us so that when we come to the table, you think, you think serving ministry is important? What if we all just got up and said, man, praise God, the Holy Spirit's moving. Oh, nobody thought of any of this. Nobody bought it. Nobody stored it. Nobody put it together. Nobody made it look presentable and nice. Nobody played instruments as we're about to sing while we receive communion. Nobody did any of that. That's service matters. May we value one another's services, especially secret, secret service that's not up front, perhaps like what those of us on the platform are doing right now. So as we come to the table, let's thank God for the many gifts in the body of Christ that bring us together. And let's communicate that gratitude towards one another. And secondly, let's value the different people who make up God's church. As we receive communion together, let's celebrate that we are different people, young and old, different backgrounds, and God has brought us together in Jesus. We come to the same table. We don't come to the Greek table and the Hebrew table. We come to the one table, the table of Jesus, to receive his bread and his cup. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.